0: Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. This month's program, entitled First We Practice to Deceive, is sponsored by Bailey Denton Photography and features the music of Antler Hill Arts. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our doctor, she was newly returned from a close encounter in a haunted mansion and newly enamored with the idea of psychical research. She decided to make inquiries at the Society of Psychical Research in London to see what data they may have supporting external proof of the consciousness continuing after death. Unfortunately, she was flummoxed in this regard by a strict no-women policy by the researchers of that organization. Of course, no, never stopped our Dr. Sage, and since she had access to a handy masculine form...
1: Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, 2nd November 1895. A recent transmigration to England in the 1960s, see Edison 31, October 1895, has made me curious about methods that science might use to track consciousness that is not tied to a body. The nature of my own experiments ensures that the consciousness does not stay temporally linked to the present, and thereby the only way to measure this factor would be in inducing translateral transmigration in either my assistant, McZentwistle, or in my friend Professor Savant. For certain reasons, I am hesitant to divulge the possibility of translateral movement to them at this time. As such, I have decided to visit the Society for Psychical Research and see what I might learn of their studies into dislocated consciousness. But unfortunately, their social concerns are not as advanced as their scientific ones. So I am required to once again make use of James Cunningham's form in order to fulfill the function.
0: And so she does it again. She puts herself into the body of Mix Cunningham, a body, which I might add, is more cadaverous by the day. As the noise of the machinery fades, Cunning Sage... Cunning Sage sits up on the bench and carefully swings both legs to the floor. She stands and wavers a bit before catching her balance and moving to the back room where normally this body lies entombed on a plinth. Carefully, she strips off the Faraday armor and CRAP helmet and sets them on a chair by the door. Underneath the armor, Cunningham's body is not dressed in the expected cotton drawers, but rather is sheathed from the waist down in corset-laced leather. There is a gap at the knees and two knobbly white horrors peer out almost like blind eyes. Cunning Sage hobbles carefully over to the closet in the corner and pulls out a leather contraption which she straps around her waist and then connects into the leather that constricts her lower half. Moving a little more gracefully now, She pulls more braces from her closet and moves to the bench by the window to sit and strap these around her lower legs, connecting them to the rods leading from the waist corset. Once the bracing is all in place, she dresses and leaves the room, locking the door behind her.
1: Hush now, you feathered things. I'll not be long gone. Abigail and Erasmus are due back this evening. You'll get your dinner, I promise you that.
0: It is tempting to not let Cunning Sage out of my sight, but I remind myself that this all happened long ago, and my watchfulness will do nothing to change the course of the doctor's actions. Perhaps I should check to see where the professor and our young assistant are.
2: Next, we have mix Abigail and Wiesel. Here, Dr. Fierstein.
0: It seems that Abigail is standing her first oral exam in the veterinary sciences. Ah, and there is our professor in the gallery.
3: Bully, Abigail. Bully for you.
0: Abigail moves to the front of the lecture hall and stands against a rail separating the students from the examiners. Taking exams in this manner has more in common with a courtroom trial than the scholarship of my own time. It is practically barbaric.
2: Homie I Thank you for your presence today. A of the following is the most common cause of maxillary sinusitis in the horse. A. Bacterial lower respiratory tract disease extending into the sinus. B. Infection and abscessation of a tooth root extending into the sinus. C. Inhaled foreign bodies lodging in the sinus. D. Puncture wounds extending into the maxillary sinus.
4: Um, B. Infection and abscessation of the tooth root extending into the sinus.
2: Noted. A horse is being re-evaluated six days after initial treatment of a minor corneal lesion. Re-examination of the affected eye shows photophobia, lacrimation, blepharospasm, corneal edema, and a yellowish-white stromal infiltrate in the cornea. Vital dye does not stain the cornea. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A Corneal scar B corneal stromal abscess, C, deep corneal ulceration, D, primary lipid keratopathy, or A, superficial corneal ulceration.
0: Judging by the test preparation notes the professor is clutching, this examination is going to take a very long while. And to be honest, I just cannot bear to stay and watch our gentle girl be drilled like a common criminal. Let's join back up with Sage and see what she is up to.
1: To the Society for Psychical Research, please. West Side.
0: An interesting note on the Society for Psychical Research. Founded in 1882 with the purpose of investigating mesmeric, psychical and spiritualist phenomena in a purely scientific spirit, they spent a great deal of effort in their early years debunking false spiritualists. They wished to find the scientific truth of the phenomena and did not hold much truck for those that would prey on the vulnerable and the gullible. These attitudes are right in line with Dr. Sage's own no-nonsense approach to science, so one would think she would find herself in fine company and happy conversation with the fellows of the society. Can stories of
3: apparitions, clairvoyant visions, precognitive dreams, the kind of miraculous events that have been reported since the earliest times, be fully accounted for in the naturalistic terms, or do they point to aspects of consciousness as yet unknown to science? Only the data will tell us, and we can only gather that data if we set strict controls on the test subjects and the parameters of the research.
1: Yes, yes, but none of your research will answer those questions unless you are fully investigating the notion of the consciousness itself. You have left out an entire foundation to your studies and simply succumbed to a type of Cartesian dualism that I am certain will bear no true relation to the consciousness at all.
3: you get ahead of yourself, sir. There is not enough data to support the idea that the consciousness might exist without the exigency of a body in which to support it. And to make such claims in such a unilateral manner confines your scientific method to the realms of quackery.
1: Quackery, you have fallen down a Newtonian rabbit hole if you are convinced that the only data will be physiological in nature. You are setting parameters to your research that may eliminate the very proofs you seek. I can see that my own thinking is already decades ahead of yours, and this society will be no help to me, and so I bid you good day, sir.
0: Well, that did not go as expected. And Dr. Sage stalked up the street in a rather high dander, not realizing that the interaction had gone so poorly not because she was a female treading on a male scientist's toes, but because the officious nature of the departed Cunningham had leached into her manner of speech to such a level that it was bound to ruffle feathers whomever she spoke with. In a more temperate person, an argument with an acknowledged expert in the field of moral philosophy, which was arguably not Sage's strong suit, would cause them to pause and consider their intemperance. For Sage, it only spurred her desire to invade more of those masculine spaces usually denied to her sex. As Abigail's midterm exams continued for the week and the doctor would only see her friends in the evening, Sage took the chance to translaterally migrate and venture into the world of men she appeared at the club.
1: You are wrong, sir, to assume that the fairer sex is also the weaker. I propose you view the miracle of childbirth at some point and that will disabuse you of the notion that women are the weaker sex.
3: I am sorry, sir, but the gentlemen are attempting to eat their dinner.
1: Well, let them eat. If the mere talk of a medical reality sours their stomachs, then they were not very strong to begin with. Wouldn't you say?
0: She went to a polo match.
1: I am telling you that Polo is Persian in origin, and therefore Muslim. Leave off. It was a training game for the cavalry, and women played as well as men. Are we not more advanced than the Persians? Give me one reason why we do not allow women on our polo
0: fields. Shut your gob or I'll shut it for you. She bowled her way into the antechambers of government.
1: I am simply saying that it is time we took the demands of the suffragettes seriously. What... Possible for further reason can you have for denying the vote to fully half Her Majesty's subjects?
0: By the end of a week, Cunningham's erasability had bled so far into Sage's own disgust with the male-dominated world that she had a sore jaw from clenching her teeth and the dull roar of a constant headache. So, when the professor and Abigail arrived, fresh from the girl's triumph at the midterms, Sage was ready. Why, hello, stranger. Have you missed us?
1: <laughs> I can find things to do on my own, Erasmus. Abigail, is everything all right, Doctor Sage? I'm sorry. No. Well, yes. I mean, everything is fine. I just have a pesky
3: headache. Oh, I'm sorry, pet. Would you like us to go?
1: What I'd really like is to get out of this head for a while. Are you up for a transmigration?
4: I can't. I'm afraid few of the lads in the veterinary sciences want to go out for a pint to celebrate
1: surviving the midterms. I'm sorry, Abigail. I should have asked. How did you do?
3: I she did it all brilliantly. Right. She didn't miss a single question.
1: <laughs> that is
4: only because the professor took so much time to help me prepare. Honestly... I feel a bit behind the gun from the other students who knew all along that veterinary medicine is where they wish to be.
3: Oh, pish posh, they needed that head start. Otherwise, you would have left them in the dust.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad it went well. Would you do us a favor and feed the menagerie before you go? Of course. And I'll also stop by in the morning to be sure that
4: all is well while you're away. How long do you think you'll travel this time?
3: It will have to be a quick one on my part, Petra. Remember, I have that paper to present in Hamburg next week.
1: Fine. If you cannot commit to more, we shall go for just 24 hours then. That should be more than enough time for this headache to subside.
0: The headache is a nice excuse, But what truly has Petra feeling so edgy is the fact that a deep and obvious friendship has formed between the Professor and Abigail, and Sage is left out of that bond. If she were totally honest with herself, she would have to admit that she has been dodging invitations from both of them as she gathers data on translateral migration, but she wasn't in the mood to be honest. Transmigrating this evening was as much a way to avoid examining her own behavior as it was about gathering more data. And so, with many things unsaid, Abigail went to feed the animals as Petra and Erasmus dressed in their Faraday armor and prepared to explore the boundaries of consciousness free from Cartesian limits.
1: Erasmus, have you read William James on Consciousness? I'm afraid I haven't. James postulates that the consciousness is like a river or a stream, ever in flow. It's impossible to encompass, just as you cannot hold a river. The very act of cupping your hands in the flow and lifting them free of the surface changes the liquid from river to water.
3: So the fact of pulling forth a memory to examine it changes that memory. Yes. You're wondering if the consciousness, once lifted free of its natural home, ceases to be us.
1: Well, that is what all the current science and philosophy would tell us. But what do you think? Do we remain ourselves, though we transform into something not of ourselves?
3: That's a question for your data and for the philosophers. But I can tell you this, Petra. I'm quite confident that I would recognize you in any form you took. Now that I have stopped identifying you by the surface details only.
1: Data... You're right, of course. Thank you, old friend, for reminding me why this work is important. Abigail, (laughs) we're away. Recall is set for 24 hours. See you then. Ta, Doctor. Have a good transmigration.
0: Where in the stream of time will the consciousnesses of our heroes find purchase? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the talented melodical expressions of Antler Hill Arts.
5: still Of these days. I guarantee I will be to take my bones out this grave and shake up all the dust if it's the last thing I do in your field no oh rust until the angels call me home I guarantee I will be pushing up these
0: And now, back to our story. Our heroes have landed in the coldest, wettest, bug-infestedest, most miserable yet stunningly beautiful place on Earth. Scotland? I'd know these bends and glens anywhere. They awakened in bodies dead of knife wounds, evidently delivered in a fight over food, they are both starved and wan in the bodies of Highland girls. The professor is distinctly uncomfortable being back in a more vulnerable form. Oh,
4: so you're talking now, is it? You done here killed each other air across the bridge, you dafties. Are you all patched up now and ready to doon on? We'll no reach Glasgow by nightfall if we didn't move. I'm... what?
3: Yes, yes. We're sorry, miss. We'll be up and ready to walk in just a moment.
4: Didn't you go taking on airs with me, Jenny Cameron? You've worked in a fine house no matter how large your shapes grow. You haven't had the clothes, you haven't had the manners, and you certainly didn't have the wits.
0: As the older woman moved off, our heroes did their best to bandage wounds and prepare to join their travel companions on the road to Glasgow. Here, Petra, this must be the mean crust of bread these two poor wretches were
3: fighting over. It's as hard as stone and less pleasing than sea biscuit by the looks of it, but it will be something in the belly.
1: Uh, no, you have it all. By all appearances, your body died first, and you've lost a deal more blood than I. Perhaps we could share
3: it. <clears throat> well, that won't work. I'm afraid I'll. I'll have to gnaw on it for a while.
1: Really, it's fine. Any idea what is happening? We each have bundles to carry, and there are quite a lot of people moving along this same path. But it doesn't have the air of a festival or a holiday movement. Well,
3: judging by the clothing and the general poverty I sense in ourselves and our traveling companions, I assume we're the victims of the clearances. Clearances? Over a 100-year period, Scotland underwent a primary upheaval that saw the end of the old feudal systems, the near abolishment of the clans, and the establishment of the landlordism, which had long overtaken the lands to the south.
1: So basically, they decided that sheep were more profitable than people.
3: Sheep and cows, yes. Vast numbers of people were displaced and the run-rig system dismantled. Highlanders flooded into lowland cities looking for work. Many of them found jobs in the factories, but many thousands more boarded ships for the new world.
4: Move your arse, you two lollygaggers. Jock's playing your nice tune to get you moving.
3: Well, a long walk on an empty belly whilst suffering from weakness induced by blood loss is not a particularly jolly holiday, but at least it will give me a chance to speak with you. There's something
0: I've been meaning to tell you. And so, as they trudged onward towards Glasgow, holding each other upright against the lightheadedness of blood loss, Erasmus finally found the courage to tell Petra all that had happened to him on his first occasion in a feminine host body. Something happened to me, or, well, to Charlotte,
3: uh, to the body I occupied when we traveled to Seneca Falls last spring.
1: Is this the reason you didn't join Abigail and I back in the cave?
3: Well, yes, well, no, I... It was the thing that made me choose to not to return to the cave. That brute of a fiance of hers took me into the stables and violated me. (gasps) Oh
1: no, Erasmus!
3: I'm all right. I've had time to come to terms with it, and luckily this body, I mean my body, back back home in the lab, has no memory of it. It seems to help.
1: No person should ever have to go through such a horrible thing. Did he hurt you very badly?
3: What was the strangest thing about it. As a man, I've always thought the physical pain of such an attack would be the worst part of it, but it isn't. Not at all. The worst part is the erasure of personhood. One moment you're there, a living, breathing, thinking human, and the next... You're nothing but a receptacle for anger and lust. No... No, not even lust. This act was not connected to human passion. It's an act of pure ego. One consciousness fully erasing another so that the attacker can attempt to fill the body in question with his own ego.
1: That is terrible.
3: Yes. I think people believe this crime to be one of the id, that it comes from some instinctual need. But I watched his eyes. It wasn't flailing hunger. It was targeted desire. His desire to feel bigger than himself. He needed to reduce her in order to, I don't know. I'm not making sense, I know.
1: You don't have to make sense. Can I help in any way? Could I have helped at the time?
3: I don't think it's possible for you to fully understand this if it hasn't happened to you. But the only help I needed was taking steps to firmly reclaim my own ego.
1: And you took those steps?
3: Some on the night, others in, in the weeks after.
1: Which is why you were so distant and moody. Yes. Does Abigail know?
3: No, no, certainly not. No, no. She would never transmigrate again.
1: <laughs> Erasmus, I hate to break this to you, but Abigail is a woman. She is a as much at risk of violation on the Quad at Kings as she is in any other time and place. We women must always be on guard against it. But tell me, what steps did you take to reclaim yourself that night? <laughs>
3: well, I took advantage of a fact I knew and he didn't, the wretch. I knew that my body would be dead in a few hours. So when the recall was sounded,
0: At the sound of the alarm, the Highlanders all around our pair dropped to the heather, the muted colors of their clothing blending seamlessly with the landscape.
4: Talk to the heathers, you wee dafties! You'll get us all done
3: for by the watch and you don't.
0: We should hide, like the others. Petra, come.
3: Whatever for? Is it illegal to walk in Scotland?
0: Just come on, I'll explain. They slid off the trail and into the underbrush, the chill of the moisture gathered in the branches and leaves pressing hungrily against the outer layers of their woolen garments. As they huddled on the damp ground, the sound of a bunch of riders reached them, and before long they saw a chain of men riding sturdy horses come across the ridge and begin to descend onto the trail the walkers had occupied just moments ago. Sage looked around for the hand carts a few of her neighbors had been pulling, but there was no sign of those, nor any sight of her fellows either. The heather had swallowed them whole.
3: From the time of the first Jacobite uprising, the law in Scotland has been cruelly and unevenly applied. Parliament refused any sort of municipal structure to take the part of the defeated clans. Before the Battle of Clottenmore, the clan chieftains were responsible for law and order within the boundaries of their lands, and after, of course, Parliament had the Black Watch enact a very harsh sort of punitive justice. Since that time, various ad hoc groups have come to power, imposing a sort of martial law, but one that is not beholden
0: to any particular authority. Vigilantes. Most likely. The concept of a watch is one of safety and security, but the men in this troop are anything but safe. In fact, They have made a fairly tidy living by stripping poor, unwary Highlanders along this road of any and all meager possessions. It would seem counterintuitive to steal from people so poor, but in a land rocked by famine and job shortages, even the meanest of possessions is better than none. More cruel is the fact that these same men will ride ahead and at some point just before the trail enters Glasgow, present themselves as answers to prayer, offering only indentured servitude.
1: But what can they hope to steal? These people have nothing.
3: They have clothes. There are a couple of carts. That is more than many.
1: That is deplorable.
3: Yes, and history tells it that these same men after taking all of a body's possessions, will reappear and offer the solution to the troubles if you will only sign away seven years of your life in free labor to pay for passage to the new world or to take up your place in the assembly lines.
1: But so many factory workers die young.
3: In many ways, the great business interests of our times mimic the behavior of young Charlotte's beau. They take as they wish refuse to acknowledge the human souls they are hurting and endeavor to insert their ego into all they touch.
0: Ugh. This talk of corporations and their legacy is one of the harder aspects of studying history. I think perhaps we will leave Sage and Savant for now, crouching in the heather, and pause for a word from our sponsor.
1: Bailey Denton Photography is Southern California's premier historical photography studio dedicated to the preservation of wet plate photography. This process was the height of photographic technology during the latter half of the 19th century. Now, Bailey Denton brings us handmade photography for the digital age. November is a great month to book a private session in the Bailey Denton studio. Schedule your session and create a -a once-in-a-lifetime keepsake gift for your loved ones this holiday season. Bailey Denton recreate the shots that make the tintypes and amber types of old so distinctive, but they also love to get playful with holiday portraits, boudoir shots, or art prints taking inspiration from your interests. They have many awesome props, but will also work with you to highlight your interests and passions. For a truly unique gift that will be treasured for generations, call Bailey Denton at 714-715 6092 or find them online at www.baileydentonphoto.com
0: Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. For the perfect keepsake ambrotype to gift your loved ones this holiday season, see Bailey Denton Photography. And now, back to our story. After the watch cleared the area, it was decided that it would be safer to sleep for the night and take advantage of the dawn when it was supposed that full bellies and a warm fire in an inn would render the greedy vigilantes less vigilant. Perhaps that plan worked, but we will never know, because the 24 hours were up and the recall chimes sounded. The professor opened his eyes, turning to smile at his dearest friend. They say confession is good for the soul, and the proof of that was in Erasmus's countenance. He looked more at peace than he had been in months. Well, that wasn't exactly our most
3: elegant destination, Petra.
1: Oh, you're back!
3: Petra? Petra? Abigail, she isn't back. Can you check the settings? Did her recall chime sound? Both chimes sounded as expected.
4: Oh. That is strange.
0: Yes, that is strange. The doctor definitely transmigrated out of the Highland girl. I can sense her presence. Oh! Oh dear. The doctor has woken up in the body of Mix Cunningham.
5: Erasmus? Erasmus
1: of oh No! No, no, no! Why am I back in Cunningham's body? Why am I back here?
3: Did you hear that, Professor? you what? She's insensible.
4: She didn't say anything. I I thought I heard something in the closet. Never mind. Perhaps Dr. Sage's recall chime didn't work after all. Let me see if I can strike it manually. Let me pull down the swing chair.
0: As the recall chimes, a spear of white-hot pain lances through the doctor's skull knocking her back onto the plinth and sending blazing sparks across her vision. Her stomach clenches in revolt, and her limbs shake with palsy.
3: Petra? Petra, love? Anything? No. Nothing. That is
4: really strange. Is there anything about the body she was in that might have caused her to want to
3: stay for a while? You mean she might have willed herself to stay? Is that possible? Mm -mm. And even if it is, We were cold and wet and starving in Scotland. I don't imagine there was anything that could have kept her there.
4: Well, so what shall we do now?
3: Well, I suppose. When I was stranded in Senegal, was there anything Petra was able to do that brought me home?
4: No. Well, maybe the music. That was the first time we tried it, but nothing else worked.
3: Well then, her body seems stable. Perhaps we should just leave her be and check on her in the morning. I don't know what else we can do.
4: I suppose you're right.
0: Reluctantly, the doctor's friends leave for the night, changing out of Faraday armor, putting the menagerie to bed, and turning off the lights before they go. As soon as the outer laboratory is quiet, Sage rises from her plinth and makes her way to the main dais, pushing the gurney that allows her to move Cunningham's body by herself. Her hands are shaking violently, and her knees keep threatening to buckle. She is muttering under her breath, a behavior that has been amplifying in the weeks since she began translateral movements.
1: Why? Uh, Why is not the question? The question is how? Cunningham's Faraday has no resonator. The suit on my own body does. The recall pitch is set to vibrate with my resonator. Is there some residue left behind when one is transmigrated that serves as an organic resonator? If so, where would that residue be found and measured? In the brain, I suppose. I shall have to autopsy and check for foreign growths, or look at the chemical balance of the fluids in the brain.
0: Autopsy? The medical examination of dead bodies? But Cunning Sage is still very much alive. Does this mean she plans to kill him? She can't possibly be talking of doing an autopsy on her own body. Ladies and gentlemen, my head is spinning and I cannot tell if it is leftover physical sensations from the bad awakening or due to the horrible spin Sage's thoughts are taking. Once she has everything set for translateral migration, the doctor climbs onto the plinth and flips the switch. The typical blue lightning plays over the twin forms, the machinery sparking and glowing like always. A narrow arc of sickly green lightning has connected the two bodies. They twitch and strain under its impact. I don't understand what... This... this has never happened before! The bodies buck and squirm as the Green Lightning overpowers the Blue, racing now along the length of the Faraday Armor on both bodies. Cunning Sage reaches out a palsied hand and turns a dial on the control panel. The intensity of the beam from the Overhead Dynamo is increased, and the Blue Lightning fights its way back, pushing down the Copper Leads and into the mesh of the Faraday Armor on both bodies. The two colors battle against each other, first one gaining ground and then the other. Hair begins to sizzle, and a thin gray smoke filters out of the equipment. The resonator on the doctor's torso begins to hum, and the tension in the air rises to a fever pitch. This cannot go on! And thankfully, it doesn't. As the cacophony ends and the lightning recedes, Dr. Sage, back in her own body, unbuckles with weak and shaking hands. Her eyebrows and the hair at the edges of her C.R.A.P. helmet have been singed away. The skin on the back of her hands shows the Lichtenberg scars that have not occurred since she developed the Faraday armor. She sits up slowly and takes a few deep breaths before getting to her feet. She moves with a mechanical jerking, her limbs not yet responding fluidly to the commands from her brain. She stumbles to the panel and restores the lights overhead. Then she shambles back to the body of Mix Cunningham, laying flaccidly on its plinth.
1: I'm sorry, James. I've given you as long as I could. I hope that you will continue to live in the past, but it's obviously too dangerous to have your body live on here in the present.
0: Sage pulls open a drawer in the console and reveals a surgical tray with a full array of instruments. I did not even know she had that here. There is, after all, a full surgical laboratory just downstairs. She selects a scalpel, but then thinks better of it.
1: Uh, No reason to get blood on the Faraday armor.
0: Sage strips the Provost's body, removing the Faraday armor and the C.R.A.P. helmet, then unlacing the leather braces on the legs. When she is done, the weak and slender body of her once formidable foe lies exposed and vulnerable to the night. Sage carefully removes her own Faraday armor, revealing Lichtenberg figures across her torso and up both arms. Removing the C.R.A.P. helmet reveals a large patch of bare and blistered scalp where a clump of hair has burned away. She dons a surgical gown from the drawer in the console and picks up the scalpel to consider the provost.
1: The quickest way would be to slit the jugular. But what would Erasmus say? Better to let him think James died of natural deterioration. I'll need to choose a more subtle placement.
0: Sage pulls a length of rubber tubing from the drawer selects a place on the provost's thigh, and slices through the skin and muscle to expose the artery. She uses wadded gauze to stop the blood oozing from the cut, and slips a finger beneath the pulsing artery. Lifting the living snake up a little from its bed of muscle and sinew, she slices into it, careful to cut through only one side, then slips the end of the rubber tube deftly in through the slit. She clamps the tube into place in the artery and adds another clamp onto the free end of the tube, preventing the blood's escape. She stretches up from her handiwork and looks across the laboratory.
1: Now, for something to collect the blood.
0: The doctor steps into the back room and returns carrying a two-gallon glass jug. Dropping the free end of the tube into the jug, she releases the clamp and blood begins to flow from Cunningham's body, quickly filling the bottom of the vessel and then rising inexorably up the sides. Sage puts a bloody hand to the provost's cheek.
1: Goodbye, James. I should have liked to continue using your body, but I cannot chance losing myself in your masculine embrace. I hope it would be some comfort knowing that your body will advance science.
0: As the body of James Cunningham slips silently into death, Petronella Sage methodically cleans her surgical implements and puts her laboratory to rights.
1: I'll need to take his brain out tonight, before Abigail and Erasmus return, and then stage the body to look like it was still on life support and simply died of naturally... I'll have to come up with some kind of excuse for why we won't be transmigrating for a while.
0: Sage catches sight of herself in the mirror and realizes that her appearance is the only excuse she will need she can say that there was an equipment malfunction. That before it is safe to travel again, she will need to do a complete laboratory overhaul. As she verbalizes her plans, she spins further and further into a haze of madness.
1: And Abigail, your studies will be deepening as we approach the end of term. I'm sure you could use the extra time. Don't worry about your menagerie, I can keep them fed and the cages cleaned. No, Erasmus. You know you were hoping to attend the Frankfurt Symposium after Hamburg. You wanted to present your paper on the importance of minutiae in identifying era characteristics. I'll be fine. It is time I compile my own research into a coherent form anyway. Perhaps we can all get together and take a long trip over the Christmas holidays. Abigail, would you like to come along this year? There is something magical about transmigrating over Christmas. Who knows? Maybe you'll fall in love, too. Wouldn't that be grand?
0: Is Dr. Sage losing her mind? Did the damage from her entanglement with Cunningham create permanent corruption? Will Abigail and the professor see through her ruse? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a twin-star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for Season 3 was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolfe. Special music in this episode was provided by Antler Hill Arts check them out at antlerhillarts.com we would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor bailey denton photography episode 304 first we practice to deceive was written by eddie louise are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode like us on facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction Finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.